good Wednesday morning, everybody, and thank you all for listening today. We are talking with Dr. John Patrick, and he is going to be talking about where we've come from, where we're going, and what we need to do to get back to being a force. I'm going to let you intro this one. Give me the topic <laughs> for today. Uh, it's the continuation of what I'm doing all the while. We are required to tell what the Lord has done for us. And that doesn't just mean personal experience. It certainly means that. But it, it means that we have a duty to understand as much as we can about the person we say we worship. So as I was thinking about this week, uh, Jeremy Begbie came to mind. Uh, some of you may know that name. Most of you probably don't, which is a pity. I don't know whether he's still at Duke. He might be, but he's uh, an English guy who taught uh, theology and uh, art together uh, and philosophy. I mean, he, uh, he's a polymath uh, and a superb musician. Uh, and some years ago, we, we had him at Augustine College uh, and he gave a, a three-day seminar, basically, uh, accompanied from the piano. And in his opening, he said he played a piece of music. It was a piece of Mozart. And he stopped one chord before the end. And he looked up and he said, Now, don't any of you tell me you're not musical. Everybody in this room knows that that piece was not finished. And he played the final chord. He said, now it is. Now, if Mozart had been two floors up and he heard that stop, he would have been down here to play the last chord. We, we all understand that. We can hear when the story is complete. And he said, a great piece of music has a beginning and an end, and we know when we got there. It starts in that key and then it wanders around and comes back to that key. He said, if it's, a, if it's a Wagner opera, you may be gone for five hours before you get to the end of the journey. He said, the Bible's like that. Uh, mustn't be taken too seriously, this metaphor, but I find it very helpful. He said, the Bible is a story of home away and home again. Uh, and as human beings traveling in this world, we're all, we know, as Chesterton put it, that we are the survivors of a colossal wreck that went down before the beginning of written time, uh, the Garden of Eden. And we journey in this world seeking our way back, so to speak. God has made it that way. But within the home away, home again pattern of traditional Western classical music, there are little away, home, home away and home again journeys. Uh, the big one, of course, is the Garden of Eden to the city of God, and that's the beginning and the end of the Bible. Uh, the new city of God, the new Jerusalem. But there's little ones. Uh, there's Israel to Egypt and back again. Uh, all the way through, nested within one another, there are big stories and little ones. Our little stories of realizing that we are lost and finding our way home again. And uh, at the moment, I think there's hope for the world precisely because so many, particularly younger people, are aware that they are lost. And the first step in to the process of getting things right is to recognize that you're lost. The Garden of Eden is critical for that reason. It explains in metaphorical terms what was what went on. So the Bible starts in the Garden of Eden 
And man, when he's created, is not given the accolade that he's good, like the rest of creation, except the, the heavens. Um, because he's not, because man was complete, was created radically incomplete in the sense that there was a big story coming that he knew nothing about. Um, and what happened, of course, is that, uh, as Milton puts it, the story of the Garden of Eden is one sentence, we will not serve. And we're still seeing that today. It's the recurrent theme of human living that we will not serve. Not realizing that, that service comes whether we like it or not. Every one of us is acting as though something is true. You should say, if a Martian arrived from outer space and looked at us on this earth, he would say, hmm, they, some, they believe different things. There's some who believe that they don't know everything that's going on here and they're working their way towards something else. There are others over here who seem to believe that they know everything and that it's all contained here. Very strange. Neither of them can prove that they're right in the sense that the other side has to believe. So that's why there's so much tension. We've got two major ways of looking at the world. Either you believe that we are the summit of everything and therefore we're going to, the summit within that is going to tell everybody else how to live and what to do. Or you believe that it's not that way, that we are created. And that our job here is to find out what we should be and how we get there. And in that process, we learn about God. So unlike all the other uh, tribes, peoples around uh, uh, the children of Israel in the early part of their history, they were the only one that had a story like ours, the one that has become the Judeo-Christian story, the creation story uh, that isn't about, uh, you know, gods behaving badly and copulating in the skies, which was the, the basic story around them. But this one simply begins, in the beginning, God. Get that right. Uh, it's a stunning opening. And we, we don't stop often enough and think how important that is to everything else. Because if that is true, it changes everything. And uh, even what our response, which is always anger, we always want to be top dog. So there's a problem with having a God. There's an even greater problem in not having a God. Uh, and coming to terms with it is what the Bible is all about. Beautifully summarized, I think, in one line from the Anglican Morning Prayers, where he says, whose service is perfect freedom. Cramner understood. And the younger generation are always going on about freedom without thinking about what it involves. Um, and don't even know, you know, the quotations from wise people in the past who thought about it and summarized it and aphorized it, if you like. Uh, Acton's is by far and away my favorite on this one. He says, freedom is not the freedom to do what you want. It's the freedom to do what you ought. And in that sentence, you have got the fundamental problem for each one of us as individuals, for families, for societies, for everything. Is there a divine ought outside of us? And is it our job to find out how our lives conform with that, or to be brought into confirmation? conformity with that. 
uh, we're not good at this. We're, we're, we're angry, even in our own homes, aren't we? The, the constant tensions, even when spousal, spousal love is real, but it's not peaceful, is it? Certainly not all of the while, uh, because this battle is going on uh, in, in the, the big scale and in the bigger, biggest scale. Uh, so we need to talk about this a lot more simply because our world is currently in trouble precisely over this problem and it will not face reality and we as Christians have been trying to be nice forever and there's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus tells us we have to be nice we have to be truthful because truth is more important than anything else and one of the things we learn along the way is that our natural tendencies to organize our lives around loyalty around people we know which is not bad but there's got to be truth above it so to try and organize our political life as we are at the moment and make racism the acid test of whether we're decent people or not it is utter nonsense it cannot bear the weight we're putting on it uh, and the only thing you can do is change one form of racism to another with with the black lives matter approach if they had it the way they think it should be, it would simply be that whites would now be the underdogs and there would be no redemption. Uh, they don't know any history of slavery. They don't bother to read it and find out who it was who first stopped slavery, which is throughout the, the history of humankind. As far back as we can go, we find slaves everywhere. That's the way the world is. Um, they don't know that. And the first people to stop it were Christians. And they don't even seem to recognize that. There are more slaves now in Sudan and Mali than ever crossed the Atlantic to America. And the, the slaves that came to America now constitute the richest black society on earth. We just don't have the intellectual seriousness to look at those things. So, getting good things in the right order is absolutely fundamental. Lewis somewhere, and I can't find, I think it must be in something like First and Second Things, but he said uh, that most heresy, most doctrinal error, is putting a good thing in the wrong place. Everybody knows, it's built into our DNA at one level, that there's something deeply wrong with slavery. But to make that the focus of a whole society is to get a good thing in the wrong place. The only way out of slavery is to make it of no significance, not to make it the focus of a society, to become, as Martin Luther King said, colorblind. I do not be, wish to be judged by the color of my skin, but by the quality of my character. And that's a way forward. And much progress has been made. That's all a digression, of course. Back to the Genesis story. If we are creatures, then we have creaturely responsibilities. Now, initially, the first bit of the story was the naivete of living in close relationship with God, who made himself apparent to, uh, to us in the Garden of Eden in innocency. Uh, that obviously was not the long-term story because it's quite plain to me that if you wanted a, a simple account of what the biblical story is, it's a love story. Uh, and 
once you understand how deep that love is and what it's willing to pay to bring that love to fruition, everything begins to make more sense. Because if it really is a love story, then God, when he made us, made us with the capacity to choose. And he necessarily decided that he would not overwhelm us. Because if he did, that would not be a free choice. And you need your spouse, I need my spouse, we all need our lovers to love us and for us to love in return. We can't force that to happen. It has to come about mutually. And so the initial period of innocency uh, came to an end, of course, when God gave them the first test of obedience, and of course, uh, they couldn't. That's the second story, the fall. So the first story gives an account of creation which will lead us in the right direction, and it's an amazing creation story. The more we learn, it becomes more amazing, not less. Uh, that's why uh, Stephen Meyer has been able to publish a book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, and talking about it, he gets a million views. So that tells you there's a hunger out there. Jordan Peterson's uh, engagement with Genesis is one of his most popular uh, podcasts. Uh, it makes sense. It, it begins to answer the big questions. So the fall occurred and it brought with it knowledge that they didn't have before. The first, they knew that they were naked. Uh, they didn't know that before. And of course, in, in the first story, Genesis 1, there's no human word spoken, but it, it's speaking, and particularly speaking about abstract things that differentiate us from all the other animals. And it, it's not a, an evolutionary leap that can be made by small changes in the odd uh, base in the DNA sequence that will not do it here. This is unbelievably big in its leap. Uh, the only creature that has a, an abstract world that in many ways is more important than the material one. I often have to say to, to students when I'm talking, particularly in liberal environments, uh, set them up a little bit to, to get them to ask the question I want them to ask, because if they ask it, we're, fr we're home free. Uh, and I will, will say something like this. Um, I've only been in your university a few hours and I don't know many of you. I don't know any of you well, except the guy who invited me. Uh, but I do know something about you. I know that you all hate divorce. And to say that in a liberal audience, uh, and timing is everything in this one, you can see the immediate horror before they begin to start stamping their feet and shouting and screaming. I say, hang on a minute before you get angry with me, because I can see the bubble over your head. You do hate divorce, all of you. Has any child ever enjoyed it? And of course, that's the stopper, isn't it? Everybody knows that children may, may come to terms with it in various ways, uh, but it's not a happy thing for them. It never can be. It may ultimately learn, learn to be an improvement, but the, it's not what they deep down need. 
uh, and then I, I show I have a uh, uh, an acquaintance uh, who's been teaching her class for many years over 20 years that if you will keep my four rules and you get divorced I will pay you a thousand dollars she's never paid out uh, but that's not tonight's topic I say and move on I must move on and then young women almost invariably young women yes you've got your hand up Janet Smith Janet Smith and it's uh, uh, you can get it you can find her on the on the web uh, the the, uh, the title is uh, oh my it's held by one more soul contraception why not strange title but that's the title and it I mean millions of people have listened to her it's hour long she's brilliant she's clever she's funny and she's truthful and amazingly she's not married and it's one of the best talks on getting marriage right that I know probably the best and uh, when I'm traveling uh, if I get to do a, an after-dinner talk in the evening which is quite common and I see a younger couple who brought a baby along I know what's going to happen they're going to come up to me after dinner and say thank you they said if we hadn't listened to you we wouldn't have immediately made ourselves open to having a baby uh, but you persuaded us that that is the right thing to do and we have done it and we are so grateful I have multiple stories I could go on for the next 20 minutes telling stories of people who come to me with this simple fact you made us understand that getting that right and trusting God is the right way to go um, yeah, just one more because I can't resist uh, I was doing early morning grand rounds in uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania and just after I'd finished a young woman came in in scrubs and she said oh I'm glad you haven't gone she said I couldn't get to your talk much as I wanted to because I had to do a Caesar but I just wanted to, to shake your hand <laughs> I said what do you mean I knew what was coming there she said oh you have made our lives so much better my husband and I heard you talk about making family the first trust that you really give to God uh, being open to his uh, guiding your passions and your life um, we got a baby and she said that baby is the center of our lives she said I'm in I'm in the middle of my residency but my husband does IT and we've been able to keep the whole thing going and keep the ball in the air but I can come home for a very from a very bad day and all those cares and anxieties and anger are washed away by that baby and that of course is true it's especially when you're not alone in the marriage uh, one of the worst things happening to America is single parents and the data is overwhelming I mean nobody can deny it there's no question that the best way to bring up a child is not related to education it's related to whether you have an environment in which a man and a woman love one another and love the child together no other environment comes close because love is more important than anything else and then I could go on and talk to students and say look your problem is that you've been turned without knowing it into a materialist 
you think that the only things that are real are measurable facts. Stop and think for a moment. If uh, you have a, a relationship which you think you love and you think is growing and suddenly the other person turns away and says, I've had enough, I'm leaving. Is that a small thing? Of course it's not. It's devastating. What material fact can you find out about that? You can't because it's much deeper than that. Love is immaterial. That doesn't mean it isn't real. It's more real, not less real. The realities of our bodies are going to go back to the dust from which they came. But we're taught that the realities of our relationship to God do not go back to dust. And it, within your lifetime, a stable marriage is one of the, the greatest things that can happen to you. Yeah, you will have your wars, you'll it's an ongoing thing and always will be uh, but there's a, a solidity to it which particularly at the moment the the young people are looking for something that's solid and you can build your life on um, and they're trying to do it in material terms and in subjective terms where it's out there there's objective moral truth obey it and there will be a, a sound basis to your life uh, I was just looking a moment ago at a, a picture and a calendar that the children made with our, whatever, whatever it was, 50th wedding anniversary and we we're standing outside a, a hotel in, in just 10 minutes from here uh, having had an excellent meal and, and took a photograph and there's 30, 30 people plus there. Uh, there were a few from outside on the peripheries of the family but that was the family. Uh, two uh, to ten to already 25 tw 20, 22 or 23 in the next generation and it won't be long before this, the next generation that is unbelievable these days and no divorce no one who was in that photograph was divorced that is, that is an astonishing gift for for which one can only give thanks I was in Moscow, Idaho <clears throat> this last weekend helping a friend do electrical on his house. And I went up without my family because there was nothing for them to do up there because I was just working the whole time. And so then because of that, uh, Luke Ryan invited me to dinner that night at his parents' house. And so they live in Moscow, Idaho. And every Saturday, all the siblings come together and do dinner every Saturday night. So there's seven siblings, five live in Moscow, so five plus their partners, plus their kids. And so I'm watching this and we go up and there's like cocktails and drinks and, you know, a big farmhouse kind of thing. And then the dad comes and gathers everybody together, prays. Immediately when they're done praying, they sing uh, the doxology, which catches me off guard. It's their tradition. I don't know it. And they go right into the doxology. <laughs> yeah. And, Everybody sits down to dinner and everybody's having a good time. And I was just thinking, man, that's amazing. They do that every week, like that whole family and the joys that the parents could have and seeing all their kids around and their kids' kids and three generations. We only get it for Thanksgiving so that we get them all together. It's, it's very difficult to get them all together now. Uh, but, yeah, we have much the same sort of structure. Uh, uh being a farm the kids immediately are in the creek and all over the place and you have to cajole and shout to get them all back in for grace and that meal but then uh, we have a long table with a bench on one side because you can uh, 
fit an awful lot of children into a long bench and there's a chair at each end which one is mine and the other is Sally's and everybody else finds a, a space somewhere but yeah it, it's a great blessing and one that so many people never never know about I mean uh, beautifully uh, a few years ago uh, one Saturday morning we lived opposite the church we went to at that time and uh, Sally went over to do some photocopying or something like that in the office for Sunday and Kathy my second daughter went across with her and Kathy was wandering around the church and then she came back and said mommy there's a man sitting on the floor in the kitchen and uh, Sally went along uh, and looked being Sally she didn't get out and call the police she went and looked and there was a, a young man sitting on the floor and she said who are you and he said well it was cold uh, I got in through the window which I forced and she said have you got nothing to eat and he said no she's come with me so without finding out anything about this guy she brought him across the road to our house and he stayed with us for the weekend it turned out he was a felon uh, he was on parole uh, having served time for grievous bodily harm uh, this came out slowly um, and he was outside his parole area and I said look on, on Monday morning I'll drive you out to the edge of town on the highway so that you can get back in your parole area so he's not in deep trouble um, and I found a sleeping bag for him on the way but uh, uh, when we were in the car uh, he, he said I'll never forget this he said you know that is the first time in my life that I've ever eaten a meal with a family that was it was beautiful and he said while you were out I did go through the house and I found all the money but I stuffed it down the side of the chair before I left I don't know what happened to him we've never heard from him uh, but it, 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 it that's deeply moving isn't it that, and also so sad that our society uh, has gone in the direction that it's gone Ordinary people, blue-collar people, still retain more wisdom than the, the liberal elite who immediately rationalise their own desires. And they pay the price in their inability to hold a, a relationship, in most cases, for any length of time at all, particularly the, uh, the people who live in Hollywood and places like that. Whereas where I grew up in a blue-collar environment, I think there was one divorce in a house of four, a road of 400 houses that I knew about as a child. Uh, yeah, they, those homes were not perfect homes, aren't? But they were better than anything else that's going. So, this capacity to understand that keeping your promises, loving one another as a way of life, is fundamental. Had been, had grown throughout Judeo-Christian history. It took a long while coming, and I mean Abraham had a lot to learn along the way, but we we haven't quite got to Abraham yet. So in the first story, we don't hear a word from Adam or Eve. Uh, God simply tells them uh, that He created everything, and then we learn that there's something called the Spirit that moves over the surface of the waters, which were formless. Uh, so Genesis from then on is not about the cosmos primarily it's about earth 
and then the, the narrator and we don't know who the narrator is to Moses uh, Jesus makes the most sensible guess as to who the who told the story to Moses uh, but nevertheless there is a narrator behind the story but Adam says nothing and we get the whole creation laid out in a remarkably uh, what's the word I want well scientific way in a way it starts at the beginning with creation uh, we don't know what comes before the Big Bang something's there Penrose says the Big Bang is not the beginning uh, a mind perhaps is not an unreasonable thing to do uh, matter as we know it certainly wasn't there uh, energy was there um, so great thinkers like Penrose and many other cosmologists are perfectly open to the idea of mind so they don't go after the people who change their their position from being materialists to saying no I think there's a mind behind the universe and it's a common well common is the wrong word if you're a really great thinker you're quite likely to end up having taken a very long long journey to what a five-year-old can do by hearing the story of Jesus once uh, but that's the way it is that we all have our role as models uh, teaching people what to do and what not to do so then the second story is about when that naive living with God in paradise and not knowing good or evil um, being told look you don't touch the trees in the middle of the garden uh, we don't know whether that was going to be forever or whatever how what that metaphor means uh, except that it's clearly a pro prohibition which uh, tempted by the devil Eve uh, succumbed and persuaded Adam to succumb too and that was the colossal wreck that went down and they were outside the garden and it's amazing how little is said about it by Adam and Eve as they, they must have passed on the story orally but uh, we only have what we have in Genesis and of course it's not long before God says to Cain evil is waiting at the gate and you must control it and he didn't uh, that word that's used to describe Cain's need to control is the same controlling word when, when it says a woman's desire shall be for the man it, it's not as men would like to believe that she's overwhelmed by our strength our beauty our intelligence no she wants to control that's built into her uh, subconscious too and so we begin learning how we can get these things wrong step by step and the other astonishing thing is that there are no commandments given to uh, Adam and Eve about how they should live. God lets humans work it out for themselves for a long while until it gets so bad that we get to the flood uh, and they have to start again with Noah who immediately gets it wrong again but he was a better start than before and there's history and we also have the, the story of Babel that is a reminder that what we 
are always out to do is to get to the top of the heap. And God says, that's not going to be good for you. So he breaks us down. And of course, languages are what make nations, real nations. Uh, even within families we have, as you've just said in the little discussion we just had, we, we evolve traditions that involve language. But language holds you together. And we need, we're, we're forgetting that. Nobody's ever really succeeded in making uh, a bilingual nation. They can make a nation that accepts a bilingual approach, but it, the bilingualness doesn't make you uh, a nation, and there's always tensions. Um, the Flemings and the Walloons in uh, Belgium are a good example. Uh, Canada, we, Quebec, and the rest of us. Um, because some parts of language can't be translated uh, adequately, as people who are truly bilingual will tell you. Uh, so by confusing their languages, he set up the nation state, which was bigger than the family and the tribe, but was not meant to go any further because that's what Babel was. It was all men coming together to, sh to make their, themselves gods in effect. So. Within Genesis, all the main features of human life are, are beginning to emerge very, very quickly. And the tensions within families are all there. It's all there to read and to ponder and to think about. Uh, and ask ourselves the question, what is God doing? What's his plan? Well, of course, each step is making us, if we're willing, closer to being able to say I was wrong to think that I could decide what I should do. Radical individualism uh, is, is very dangerous. So we have uh, Esau and, and uh, Jacob. Uh, Isaac stayed at home. I mean, given that God tested Abraham with a, a request that would not have been unreasonable looking at the tribes around you. Infant sacrifice is there in archaeology all the way through. But God said, I, I'm glad you're obedient, but no, I don't do this. And there's this major change from infant sacrifice. God said, no, look, there's a ram, sacrifice that. Uh, and that recognition, this beginning of the teaching of the, the sanctity of human life because we're the only creature made in the image of God. It's there. It's all in Genesis, so to speak. But uh, Isaac stayed at home after that experience. You know, he, he, he was a mother's boy. Uh, understandably, I think, that must have been a quite a traumatic experience for him. But uh, when uh, his father found him a wife, uh, that was fine and the result uh, Jacob and Esau then brings us another fratricidal uh, episode uh, the sense of it is Esau's choice of immediate material satisfaction what I want now is what matters most and so he sold his birthright from Mesopotage uh, a phrase that many of the young would not even recognize Although you see it, I heard it somewhere the other week with somebody who understood what they were saying or read it somewhere. Yeah, I read it. Um, 
but it's very interesting. Uh, Leon Kass, to whom I am greatly indebted in all these things about Genesis, uh, an unbelieving Jew on his way to deeper understanding, brilliant man. But uh, he points out, uh, and it's really a, a, a brilliant uh, insight as to, to what is going on in, in the story. I don't know how best to express it because he takes several pages. But he points out that the relation, the, the, the coming together again of Esau and Isaac and the coming together again of Joseph and Jacob, sorry, Esau and Jacob, and the coming together again of Jacob and Joseph are quite different in a very interesting way. When after the long absence, uh, Jacob goes back to meet Esau, he's very canny setting it up so that he doesn't lose everything. He's worried about what Esau's going to do. Is he going to beat him up? What's going to happen? But when they arrive, what do they do? They immediately embrace with tears and they're reconciled and then they go their separate ways but it was emotional now when Joseph met Jacob in Egypt Cass notes that there's no statement that Jacob embraced Joseph there's no evidence no statement that he was overwhelmed with emotion and he said if he was, his emotion was probably quite the opposite because he was utterly unprepared for the fact that Jacob was now, uh, Joseph was now culturally an Egyptian. I mean, he was the prime minister. He was dressed in the height of fashion, which was nothing like a Jewish herder. He had become an Egyptian. So when Jacob blessed, he didn't bless Joseph, he blessed his sons and to rub it in, he crossed his hands and blessed, gave the primary blessing to the younger, not the older. Um, these little things are so, they heighten the story, don't they? they? They underline it. To go on from there is to get into the, the patriarchs and their long uh, learning process. Abraham had to learn what it meant to be both a husband and a father in his story. He advanced uh, the understanding of the importance of marriage and the importance of fatherhood so that it becomes central to the Jewish account of how we should live. But still no, oh you're back, good, um, but still no rules, no regulations. Uh, something has to happen to make those rules really stick and God knows exactly the right time to do it. Now when he's talking to Abraham at the end of his life and he, he says look everything that you can see will be yours but your children will be slaves in Egypt for several centuries and Abraham basically says though you yourself says God will die at a ripe old age and Abraham says thank you <laughs> he doesn't seem to be too concerned about what's going to happen to his children for a few centuries um, they say there's no humor in the Bible um, and of course it happened and when they came out of Egypt and that was a pretty stunning experience for the children of Israel and they had a lot of stunning experiences in a very short period 
uh, all the plagues in Egypt, especially the killing of the firstborn, which didn't affect them, coming through the Red Sea, the Egyptian army wiped out, going into the desert and getting to Sinai. Now, this is such a central point uh, in Jewish history, and we all need to think about it because it made the Jews the Jews, ultimately. And nobody can deny their intellectual success is first racial group in the world, without exception, without any question at all. The hard Nobel Prizes every year, a large chunk of them are won by a very small 15 million group of people called the Jews. And they know why. And they'll tell you if you ask them. So they get to Sinai and the whole book of Deuteronomy is really a commencement address, a little preamble reminding them of their history, and then the account of Sinai and the law. And it is our Lord's favorite book, so it behooves us to take more interest in it than we do usually. I read it often. Um, uh, just a few weeks ago, I read through the whole book again. Uh, it, it's salutary to do it. Um, so, what Moses says to them is really quite astonishing. He's not going to go into the promised land. Uh, but he begins his valedictory talk for, from him, but their commencement address, uh, by reminding them of their history. And then he says, your greatest gift was what you had given to you at Sinai. And that law it's the greatest law that the world has had and will have. And he's very politically incorrect. He says, even the tribes around you will recognize that your law is greater than their law and your God is closer to you than their gods are to them. Very politically incorrect, not at all multicultural. Uh, but then he goes on and reminds them of what they said. They, they had their free will taken away at that point, didn't they? They were, if you like... Uh, lambs taken to the slaughter at the level of intellectual free will because if you or I had stood there or anyone had stood there and heard God speak in, a lang in our language the Ten Commandments accompanied by a small volcano, thunder and lightning uh, would we have any free will about believing in the existence of God after that? Of course not only an idiot would say it didn't happen. If, you, if everybody was there, they'd say, no, we've never, ever experienced anything like that. That was God. And it was so overwhelming, they said to Moses, you go up the mountain, we, we've, we don't want any more of this. We'll do exactly what it says. And of course, while Moses is up the mountain, they break the first three commandments in order. So if an experience of God like that cannot make you good, what will? better pack up and eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and there's nothing we can do about it. That would be the rational response, but it isn't the biblical response. Uh, and God, uh, Moses says, God has said, I heard what this people said. And then God says, oh, over the human race. Uh, George Whit Whitfield was famous for the way in which when he was preaching, he would stop and say, oh, that. 
And one of the famous actors of the day said, I would give my right hand to be able to say, oh, like George Whitfield. But God said, oh, over us. And he said, oh, that they would have such a heart and mind as this to keep my law, that it might go well with them and their children forever. But they will not. They will lose their way. They will be brought down. But they will come back. Now, at this point, Moses could say, we haven't done very well, have we? But you shouldn't give up. And then comes the center of Judaism, and a foundation stone of our modern world. Uh, the Shema, hear, O Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. No mind there, because heart and mind could not be separated for Judaism. And Jesus knew about us, so in the New Testament, when he's talking about that passage, he uh, he actually uses the one, the simplified one from Leviticus 19, where he goes on and says, uh, uh, you shall teach these things to your children. He's left out. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But in Deuteronomy 6, the fundamental passage, he says, your love shall be shown because you shall teach these things shall be upon your heart they shall be you shall be passionate about them they should be central to your life and you've got to transmit the story with the passion to your children not in church not in the synagogue but in everyday life when you rise up when you lie down when you go on a journey when you have a meal uh, even put them on the lintels uh, of your house build them into your life um, so Orthodox Jews will tell you that they attempt to see that their children know all the stories of the Old Testament before the age of seven. If you do that, you have given your children a moral reference bank. And we all need a moral reference bank if we're going to live decent lives. Uh, and nowadays we've produced a generation that are biblically illiterate. So it's unreasonable to expect that without a revival, we will see an improvement in our society. It cannot be. Because the limiting factors, Robert Fogel, the Chicago University Nobel Prize winner and secular Jew puts it, the limiting factor for the next 50 years is going to be, can we find enough mutual trust to run America and the Western world? It is the West and the rest, uh, because all other societies except Jews and Christians put loyalty above truth, and that will collapse inwards under the pressure of loyalty. Uh, Christians and Jews are taught to put truth above loyalty. To, it's a fundamental difference. A society that puts truth above loyalty, you get your job by what you know. In a society that puts loyalty above truth, you get a job by who you know. And you reach the point where who you know, if he's Putin, you don't tell him what he doesn't want to hear. That is going to collapse the society. If there's no truthfulness at the top, it will rot. And when uh, we can speak truth to power and it responds, then there's hope. Now, in the Christian system, that happened many times in the history as we go through it. Uh, but not at the moment. 
biblical illiteracy is the norm in the Western world, so we have no great story upon which to build our society. So, and Christians have failed in this respect. I, I don't think I would be in any danger of losing if I made a hefty bet on saying the majority of people uh, in church on Sunday morning could not even tell me all the commandments in order. Certainly they couldn't give me an account of what's contained in Deuteronomy. Until that changes, we don't have anything to offer. We become no more than another social club, roughly on a par with the country club. We were not meant to be like that. We were meant to be a, a city set on the hill, as your founding fathers wanted to be, that cannot be hid, to bring, to be salt and light to the earth, because we believed in objective moral truth. We had a story that explained why it comes from, and it answers all the big questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And the others too. But I think that's enough for this week, isn't it? Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you guys are enjoying this, let us know. Shoot us an email. Leave us a review. Rate us. If you're on YouTube, give us a like. And if you have questions for Dr. John, you can write those into www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can check in the link in descriptions below for a link to that as well. With that being said, we will see you guys next week. Thank you.